Father, I pray that as we look at your word, that we would be changed. I pray, Father, that uh, in my weakness, you would be my strength. I pray this would uh, all touch our heart. We thank you for the good news, the good word about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that where we, we see sin abound, we see grace abound even further. I pray you be glorified as we look at your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. If you got your Bible, turn over there. We're going to be looking again at the life of King Hezekiah. And we're nearing here really the fourth quarter of his life. We're looking at the events that transpire towards the end. I've entitled this message today, A Sad Ending to a Godly Life. A sad ending to a godly life. As we look at this, we're going to try to track this really in the four movements, so to speak, as we go through chapter 20. But just to get acclimated as to where we are and what we've been doing about the life of Hezekiah, in case you haven't been able to be with us. We, we've been seeing so many things about him. Here's a man that was a light in the darkness. He comes on the scene about 250 years after King David. And we learn in 2 Kings chapter 18 that he was a remarkable man touched by the grace of God. And we read back in verse 3 of 2 Kings 18, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. And then it goes on to speak about all of the acts of faithfulness that God used Hezekiah through. I mean, so many different things that we could read in the account that's given in 2 Chronicles that speak about all the reform that 2 Kings doesn't even mention, all of the ways in which he led the people in the ways of godliness. We saw his faithfulness. We saw how God blessed his life, and he blessed him as a military leader. He blessed them against their enemies. We saw his enemies. We saw Assyria. We saw Sennacherib and how Sennacherib was really a, a problem to him in so many different ways. And we saw how he succumbed to the Assyrians there at the beginning of chapter 18, even in his faithfulness. We saw his repentance, but we saw his misstep, his stumble. But in all of this, we saw a man that was uniquely different. Last time we were together, we looked at how we can trust God. The last two weeks, we've been seeing that we look at Hezekiah and we see his reliance on God. His reliance on God is clear. We saw two different scenes really develop in chapter 19. As we look at the narrative of chapter 19, we continue to see not only a man who's trusting God, but we see the character of a God who can be relied on. And throughout chapter 19, we saw who God is and why we can trust him with our life. And today, as we continue in all the trials and what scripture records of the life of Hezekiah, we continue to see many of these same realities. Today, the first movement we're going to see, the first event we're going to look at, his sickness. 
his sickness. Hezekiah becomes ill. In chapter 20, let's read as we open the chapter. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Now, now one thing, this is a side note, that we need to remember. We need to remember that in those days is a it's, it's showing us that while this is moving in a chronological way, at the end of chapter 19, we see the destruction of the Assyrians. So it's now moving us back a little bit into chapter 19. So the movement, those words, as we'll see later on, because we read it, for instance, to jump ahead in 2 Kings 20, verse 6, as God responds to his prayer and gives him more life, and we're going to see how that works, he says, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And so we go, okay, what's going on here? I thought that, you know, the king is dead, and now what is happening? I think what's happening is it's like it's moving us back a little bit into chapter 19 when his illness started. So he says in those days... As we look at his sickness, we find out he's sick, and it says, in those days he became sick, was at the point of death. And again, Isaiah the prophet, the two main prophets, um, the, the main prophet throughout Hezekiah's life that we continue to see is Isaiah. Isaiah, one of the prophets to Judah. And what happens is Isaiah comes to him and says, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Those are sobering words. We all know the reality of death, but until, I mean, you think about Hezekiah, and we'll see his response. These words had to be shocking and had to be sobering for him to hear. And as we get started, as we think about Hezekiah's sickness, I want us to think about some realities about sickness and death. I, I remember years ago in Scottsboro, I was part of a chaplaincy ministry at the hospital, and there were several local ministers. And one minister that was leading it up, he had a meeting with us. And one day, it became clear to me that we were on completely different planets when it came to sickness. He treated anyone in the hospital basically as an individual who had the option of either exercising faith and being well or not exercising faith and being sick. We do see in the scripture that sickness at times can be due to sin. Paul makes that clear. Uh, when they were abusing the Lord's Supper, at one point, he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Those are sobering words. But the reality is, throughout the word of God, we see how God uses suffering, and God uses trials in our life to grow us into the image of Christ. And so where I would strongly disagree with uh, my fellow pastor years ago was, okay, yes, sickness can be due to sin, but to make a statement that sickness is always due to sin is a dangerous thing to say. Like, for instance, in James, 
We read, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What takes place with trials of various kinds? A trial is not something we can attribute to sin. It's something that comes into our life as we are seeking to follow God. And yet we see that God uses trials. I believe he uses sickness. I believe he uses suffering. And he does it in a way for his glory and for our good that is mysterious. And we have to keep that in mind. Sickness is not always due to sin. And very often it's simply, profoundly, a tool in God's good work of sanctification for his glory, and here's where we often forget. Whatever God does for his glory is for the good of his people. Uh, It's easy sometimes to think, well, I'm going through something I don't want to go through and go, okay, I can take comfort in the glory of God. But do you realize mysteriously yet wonderfully in the scripture, when God works for his glory and the lives of his people, he always works for their good. And so when he does work gloriously and thank God that he does, he works for our good in it. So we, you know, I was thinking about a passage that we can't prove this, but it's very interesting. And I think the principle holds true regardless of what was going on with Paul and his thorn in the flesh. The one thing that Paul stated about his thorn in the flesh that many have been curiously wondered if it was sickness of some sort. In that passage, Paul says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then Paul says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." We live in a fallen world, and we live in a world of sickness and death, but praise be to God that he is victorious over death, and there will be a day in the lives of those who place their trust in him where they will experience the reality of no sickness anymore, but that will take place in the future when we have bodies that are glorified. And yet we find in all of this, God works mysteriously through sickness. There was an associate pastor that was in the church I grew up in, and so often he would make the statement that in illness we're laid aside to stillness. Often when we are sick, we come to places in our life where we, by the grace of God, look to him. We have nowhere to look. And when we look to him, it's an opportunity to ask God to examine our hearts. It's an opportunity to look to Christ, to grow in him. But God works mysteriously. Many have come to the faith in sickness. Many have grown closer to Christ in periods of sickness. God works mysteriously. God sustains. God comforts. On and on and on we see in the scripture. But the ultimate reality for the Christian under the new covenant is Christ is our only hope in life, in sickness, and in death. Christ is our only hope. Um, 
Uh, and, and it's in sickness you pray that we become aware of the frailty of life, that we don't live as if we are invincible, that we come face to face and we recognize that while we are human, created in the image of God, our days are numbered. Psalm 90, verse 12, it says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You remember when the author of Hebrews is speaking about how Christ is the greater high priest. And in that passage, he says something that as we think about death and we think about sickness, topics that people typically don't sign up to talk about, we read that what did Christ do in, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery in, in Revelation 1. He's speaking there. I'm jumping into a verse in a context, but he says, and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So several thoughts to consider as we think about the sickness of Hezekiah and as we seek to ask God, how might we learn? How might we grow? How might we be instructed even by looking at a man who's facing the prospect of his deathbed? How do we look at it? And what we see that God gives Isaiah to share with Hezekiah is sobering. He says, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Those are sobering words. I mean, what does it mean to set your house in order? Ultimately, it's making preparations for your death. Many people could give you a list of what they would regard setting your house in order to look like, whether it's financial, whether it's a will, whether it's relational, but when you set your house in order, you're preparing to meet your maker. I remember I had an assistant coach in, in college. His name was Wally West. He was a large man. He was a very intimidating guy, and it, it made him more intimidating. He was almost seven foot, and uh, he played for Rick Pitino at Boston University, and, and he would... Uh, he was an interesting guy, and, and, and I, he, he yelled at us a lot. And, and I remember one of the things he yelled about us was is that we needed to be in shape. And he would say things like, uh, you know, and he used Charles Barkley as the example. He goes, he goes, players are ready to play. You could wake them up at any time during the day, and their bodies are ready to play. They're, they're fit. They're in shape. They're always ready for the next game. And, and, and I, I didn't really like that example because usually when he shared that with us, we were being chewed out. But it hit me when I was thinking about this. It's like, okay, are you living with your bags packed? Are you ready to die? I want you to think about this. I want you to think about if God, it, we live in a, in, a, in a, when we look at the scripture, I think so many people get confused because there's seasons, there's, a timeline of how God works in redemptive history. And now we have the luxury of a completed canon. We have the full word of God. And I believe that what you see happening here is not the normative way God speaks. God speaks through his word. 
But what we find is if this were the normative period of time that we were living in today and God came to us and said, all right, you're going to die this afternoon at five o'clock. How would you look differently at the next few hours? But the reality is we shouldn't live avoiding the reality of life and death. We should live prepared. I heard it said years ago, and at the time I heard it, it sounded like a, you know, a nice cliche, but the older I've gotten, the more I see how profound the statement is, and it basically said, until you're ready to die, you're not ready to live. Are you ready? What does that mean for the Christian being ready is, is first of all, a positional righteousness based on the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that, that if you were to die today, you face the prospect of standing before your maker. You stand before the holy God of the universe. And to stand before the holy God of the universe, are you seeking to approach him? Are you seeking to be looked at as right because of your righteousness or based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? You have to have a positional righteousness. We are justified. We are declared right before a holy God based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness that has been imputed and it has literally been taken to our account. And now we stand before him with confidence. But are you ready to face him? It changes the way you look at things. It changes the way you look at your family. It changes the way you look at your future. It changes the way you look at your priorities. It changes the way you look at your hobbies. It changes the way you look at your money. Setting your house in order. It's, it's a perspective that God gives to live ready for his time when he calls us home. And so one reality that we look at here when we look at Hezekiah's sickness is he had to get his house in order. And I think it would be wise for us to look at our own affairs, to look at our own heart, to look at the prospect of what if God were to call us home today. Do you find your confidence? Whose work are you depending on this morning? Are you depending on your work, your goodness, your religious ways? Are you depending on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's only two options. But Hezekiah was facing this prospect. We not only see his sickness. I want to read you something I came across years ago. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote many resolutions. And as a young man, God gave him the wisdom to see his life in a way of uh, clarity. And he, here's some of the resolutions that he wrote out. Number six, resolved colon, to live with all my might while I do live. Imagine a young man saying it that way. Most young men don't even think about the prospect of death. Edwards, as a young man, says, to live with all my might while I do live. And then he says in Re Resolution 7, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolution eight, to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if nobody had ever been as sinful as I am, 
And when I encounter sin in others, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weaknesses or failings as others. I will use the knowledge of their failings to promote nothing but humility, even shame in myself. I will use awareness of their sinfulness and weakness only as an occasion to confess my own sins and misery to God. And then he goes right back to death in number nine. He says, resolved to think much on all occasions about my own dying. And of the common things which are involved with and surround death. Wow, what wisdom. A man who sought to follow Christ with all his heart. And as a young man, recognized how frail we truly are. So we see Hezekiah's sickness. Isaiah the prophet reveals to him, Hezekiah, set your house in order you're about to die. But then we not only see his sickness, we see his prayer. His prayer. We get into verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. What takes place here, we look at this prayer, we see that God heals him from what we just read, but I want you to see, when we pray in the midst of a crisis, it is the right response. When we pray in sickness, when we pray in blessing, when we pray in trial, when we pray in any place within our lives, it's the right response before a holy God. And I want you to think about a couple of other responses of kings within first and second kings. Actually, Second Chronicles and Second Kings. Listen to what it says about Asa in Second Chronicles 16, verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Now, isn't this interesting? We, we know that one of the ways that God provides healing even today is through God's sovereign work within physicians and medicine. But when we trust in physicians and do not trust God, it's disregard for who God is. Asa did not go to the Lord in prayer like Hezekiah did. Asa trusted in men before he trusted in God. Look at Ahaziah in 2 Kings chapter 1. Do you remember as we opened 2 Kings up? It says, Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. Now there he is. He's sick. What is he going to do? Is he going to run to the Lord? No. He sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron whether I shall recover from this sickness. So Hezekiah, 
I was reading this, and I'm going to do more to look into it, but I read through one commentator. He's the only example of a king praying to God in his illness throughout First and Second Kings. That's the statement. If you find that out not to be true, you let me know. I can't think of an example where someone did other than Hezekiah. So what do we find here? He, he turns his face to the wall. He prays to the Lord, and we see several things that he does. He turns his face to the wall. He says, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness. Remember how I've walked with you with a whole heart. Remember how I've done what is good in your sight. This reminds you of the Psalms. You know, like uh, you, you see this in Psalm 18. David says he kept the ways of the Lord. You, you see it in, in other places. Uh, Psalm 7 is similar to this. And so while it may on the surface look very prideful, you find this in the Psalms. And I think what you have going on here is a man who, according to what the scripture reveals in 2 Kings 18, had walked with God. And now he's calling out to God, just like when he heard the problem and he saw the threat of Sennacherib and he ran to the temple and he puts out all of his burden before the Lord. Now he's laying it out there honestly, wholeheartedly to his God. And, and what you find is then he weeps. He weeps. Psalm 50, verse 15, it says, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. One of the things that's difficult, isn't it? It's sort of like looking at the Gospels and trying to harmonize um, the rest of the Gospels with what's happening where you're reading. And so one of the things that's interesting is that Isaiah 38 gives an account of this prayer. Isaiah 38, if you got your Bible, Isaiah 38, verses 9 through 15, just to give you a sense of his heart. He says, a writing, it says, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. So now he's recovered um, and, and But listen to this. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning like a lion. He breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. upward. Oh, Lord, I'm oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. When we look at that passage, we, we get the, the heart of he, he is desperate before God. And now Isaiah comes back and says what? I have heard your prayer in 2 Kings 20, verse 5. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Remarkable. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then this is a peculiar passage, to, I think, to us, because this is like strange language. We have to look into the context and the culture. It says in verse 7, And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs. And let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Well, what's fascinating here is that um, 
a lot, a lot of people think that, that the figs would serve as a compress and that this, they could have been applied what, what one study Bible states, and, and I saw this other places, that they could, the, the, the cake of figs as a compress could be applied to an abscess. If something's going on with him where the medicinal qualities of the figs, at least in their understanding of it, you see this in history and you see this even in Rome, but that God didn't need the figs. God had decided to heal him. And God worked through the figs. And this man was different. God's mercy works. It's interesting. It's mysterious. Part of the way God works out his divine plan is through the means of human prayer. It's part of his infinite wisdom, according to the counsel of his will. When you look at the mysteries of God and you look in the mysteries of, of all that he predestines and all that he sets according to the counsel of his will, I think that it's, it's often as humans, when we're looking at the, the uniqueness of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, divine counsel of his will and human prayer, you have to remember that God's work in his sovereignty works through many different means. And one of the means that he works through is through the prayers of his people. And so we see this here. God works. God extends his life 15 years years. God has shown mercy on him. And look at what it says. What shall be the sign in verse eight that the Lord will heal me? The king is unwilling to believe the promise of a healing without a sign. You know, do you see this? He is thinking, I mean, God has real great mercy for him because he's like, okay, what's the proof? (laughs) What's, what's the reality you're going to do this? Verse eight, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? It's interesting. On the third day, and Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? And Hezekiah answered, it is an easy thing for the shadow, the sun's shadow, to lengthen 10 steps. Rather, let the shadow go back 10 steps. And Isaiah, the prophet, called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back 10 steps by which it had gone down the steps of Ahaz. One remarkable, I, I came across this. I thought it was, it was worth mentioning to you. One remarkable archaeological find, and remember, the study of archaeology is constantly saying the word oops when it comes to Scripture. Every time archaeologists make strong declarations that the Bible is inaccurate, give it time. It may take 100 years. It may take less than that. And there's going to be this word that pops up. Oops, we were wrong. Because when all is known about what the world that God has created and the world that God provided for us and all that took place in history, everything that is known will line up with what Scripture says. When it's incomplete knowledge, we can make the presumptuous, proud statement of saying that there's something that contradicts. But do you know what they found at the Temple Mount? They found at the Temple Mount, just in the last 15 years, they found in a pile of garbage, they found a a seal. They found this seal. I had a slide for you, and I don't think I put it back there, Joy. But it looks like this. You can't see it. It looks like this right here. I know you've, if you've got really good eyes, if you've got eyes like I do, that looks like a dot on a piece of paper. The, uh, 
But you know what it is? It's fascinating. It's this seal, and it's got a, in the center of the artifact, the sun bears two wings that point downward and are bracketed by these ancient symbols of a cross with the handle that represents life. What's fascinating is, is the archaeologists believe these weird cross symbols with this ring at the top for life, these archaeologists, many of them believe that this is a testament to how he was healed at the later part of his life and lived further. Unbelievable. Again, you know, I was, I, was, I was talking to one of my kids about it. I said, you know, what's fascinating about this is a lot of these men that believe this, they don't even believe in Jesus as Messiah. They are, um, they are Jews who've rejected Jesus. They simply are studying archaeology, but many of them marvel at the reality that so much of what they're finding lines up with the scripture. They found another one in the last 20 years, and it speaks about the pool of Hezekiah. So you got Hezekiah's, this, 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 this picture with Hezekiah, reference to Hezekiah, and then you've got this other one they found with reference to the pool that he was in charge of, you know, giving credit for providing at the end of the chapter. It speaks to amazing things. His sickness, his prayer, but unfortunately, his pride. His pride. Now we get into verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. We're around 700. Some people say 710 BC. I, I'm, I, I don't know which one it was, obviously. But, but now who's the kingdom that has, is the dominant kingdom in the world? Assyria. When does Babylon, Babylon is going to conquer Assyria, Assyria later on in the 600s, down around 612, if I remember correctly. And so here, Hezekiah makes the mistake, a sinful mistake, where he is going to look at Babylon as someone he can trust in his quest to continue to go against Assyria. And look what happens. He heard Hezekiah had been sick. So they go. When, when we look at this, he and Hezekiah welcomed them and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And you can be sure that the Babylonians knew now what he held and they wanted all of it. And they would get all of it in 586 B.C. But 2 Chronicles tells us something that's going on in the background here. In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25, But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. There it is. If we act like we can't relate to it, we prove that we already are having problems with it. Hezekiah face the reality of fleshly pride. Fleshly pride. His heart was lifted up. All through the scripture, we're warned about pride. I think the one that probably would resonate with us the most, because we hear it the most, Proverbs 16, 18, 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And in verse 14, Isaiah comes to him. What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? He's honest. And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah is, is a great example of a faithful prophet. A prophet is not to create words for God. He's to speak according to what God has revealed. So in this day, you know, you look at the false prophets of Jeremiah mentioned, the false prophets mentioned in Isaiah. What did they do? They changed up according to the ear of the person they were speaking to in order that their words might be favorable. Isaiah says something very uncomfortable to Hezekiah here. And then this should remind us, this is why when it comes to preaching and it comes to churches and it comes to how do you, where do you, where are you looking for in a church? Many of you will move from Scottsboro, you'll go to somewhere else. Many of you will change churches even while you're in Scottsboro, even if you're at this church. That's just the name of the game, right? It's just the reality. Where should you go? Not where somebody has some great gift of communication, but somewhere where somebody will be faithful to what God's word reveals. I really don't care about someone's great thoughts. I don't care about their opinions. I don't care about their communication ability. What we need is what God has revealed. So the prophet would speak forth what God had revealed, but now the word of God is completed. So what's the role of the pastor? The role of the pastor is to take what God's word has revealed and say, thus saith the Lord. According to what God has said, I heard a guy in seminary, a professor said, a guy got up in front of his church and said, you know, I've been working hard this week, but I just got nothing for you. I don't have a word for you today. I've been, I've been praying and I've been looking and I just don't have a word for you today. And the professor says, you got 66 books of the Bible. You got a word. <laughs> God's revealed his word. It's not up to some man to give some mystical, subjective reality of what he wants to share. The faithfulness of the pastor is revealed as to whether or not he sticks to the text. And if he doesn't stick to the text, he needs to get out of the pulpit. So when we look at this, I got fired up there. <laughs> I remember one time I got in the car and my kids actually helped me to stop yelling so much. I got in the car and uh, Luke and Andrew were little. And they said, Dad, you were yelling today. And I said, really? They said, yeah. And I started going, man, I need to just calm down a little bit. All right. <laughs> so what do we have here? He shows, he shows them everything in their house, his house. God gives them a punishment. Verse 18, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Man, devastating words. Devastating words. You think about your lineage. You can do a lot of things to me. Man, if you mess with my kids, it hurts a lot more than hurting me. 
and Hezekiah. He hears that. Now, this is an interesting part because look at his response. And, I, and there's a debate here in the interpretive community. And, and there's one you got to decide as well. Verse 19. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days. Now, here's the, the, the interpretive dilemma. What is happening here? Is this a further illustration of Hezekiah's pride where he basically is saying, well, you know what? It's not going to bother me. So I got all my time in my days. Is that his answer? Because some people say, look, this is another place of pride. I don't think it is. I think the fourth thing you see here is not only his sickness, his prayer, his pride. I think you see his repentance. And you say, well, why do you think it's repentance? It doesn't sound like repentance. Well, we got to consider the totality of what God's word says. And go to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and let's look at verses 24 through 26. Notice what it says. In 2 Chronicles 32, 24, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord. This is the same account. And he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But look at verse 26. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. I think the most consistent way of harmonizing 2 Kings 20, 2 Chronicles 32, is to look at this, is that it was sobering, it was hard. But Hezekiah here is trying to see the good word of the Lord in his mercy. I don't see him as flippant. I don't see how you can measure merge each passage and see an arrogant heart because in second Chronicles, it states that as he was humble, God actually gave him mercy. It's a sad ending, isn't it? It's a sad ending. It's a sad ending, but I want you to think of something I can tell you. And I've got limited experience with, uh, as a pastor of, uh, doing funerals and, being around death, and, and there's so many other pastors that have had more experience in this, maybe to the size of their congregations or maybe the age of how long they've been in ministry. But I'll tell you this, one of the greatest encouragements ever when you go to meet with the family in a funeral setting is that if you ever hear of a man or a woman that has not walked with God in the last part of their life and they've shown pride and arrogance, it's so sad but it's so refreshing when one of the sons or the cousins or the uncles or whatever will look at you and say, but you know what? By the grace of God, they were humbled and they asked God to forgive them. There's, there, there, there's a sweetness in that. It's a picture of our frailty and it's a picture of the grace of God. 
You see, when we look at Hezekiah's life, we have to remember the way that he was described at the beginning of 2 Kings 18. He was described as a godly man. He was described as a faithful man. And even though in the tragedy of the decision and the tragedy of uplifting his heart, I believe what appears to happen according to 2 Chronicles is that this man, the grace of God was not finished with. And he humbled him one more time. He humbled him. So what do we do with this? Just some, some thoughts here. Closing thoughts. Three takeaways that, that hit me personally. Number one, consider, consider your frailty. Consider your frailty. And that's in two different ways. Consider the frailty of your flesh. Consider the frailty of your flesh. Godly men and women still deal with their flesh. Godly men and women still deal with their flesh. And even under a new era of new covenant realities, we are warned about the devastating deeds of the flesh in our own lives. Take account of that. You know, are you walking humble before God, coming before him and asking God to expose you in his word, asking God by his grace to lead you and guide you in the word of truth? Because we have to learn from this godly man that even though he was a godly man, he still dealt with his flesh. We deal with our flesh. And if we are not careful, we will lose sight of how frail we are. I think sometimes we're astonished when people say, there's nothing good in me apart from Jesus Christ. I don't think some people really believe that. It's as if they want to be like, yeah, but I wouldn't do that. Or I wouldn't do that. And you go, no, no, you don't understand. Apart from me, apart from Christ, left to my own wisdom and left to my own ways, I'm capable of anything. Consider the frailty of your flesh. Consider the frailty of your physical body. Thank God for the blessing of health. Many people in this congregation are, are sick right now. And, and, and consider the frailty of your body and, and learn from Hezekiah. If you're, if you're healthy right now, consider how frail you are. Don't take it for granted. Com let it compel you to thank the Lord for the blessing of that. But live humble. Live seeking God. Put your house in order. Live with your bags packed. Live ready to meet your maker. Live in fellowship with those that you now are not in fellowship with. You know, if there's any things you got to make right with people, don't take those things for granted. Go to them. Go to them. Tell people that you love that you love them. Tell your kids what you would tell them if you had the opportunity once it was too late. Tell them now. Talk to them. Tell them how you care about them. Tell them what you want them to know about life. Look at the people that God has put in your path that God has called you to disciple. Look at things differently because we have the luxury of for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In sickness, draw near to God. Be like Hezekiah, not Asa, not Ahaziah. 
So number one, consider your frailty. Number two, consider your walk. Consider your walk. Colossians 2, 6 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. Yesterday, uh, one of my kids, I was driving, and they were asking me about cruise control. And I was explaining to them what cruise control does. And I think I said, you know, got your foot on the, the gas, you put cruise control on, you take your foot off. Piece of cake. Spiritually, are you on cruise control right now? Isn't it interesting how it's fleshly, a fleshly characteristic is to lose sight of God in the good times. Hezekiah ran to the Lord in times of trouble. One time he didn't in chapter 18, you know, when he was, he got tempted to, with, to, to rely on Assyria, but then he, he repented and then he ran to the Lord. You know, we saw different, two different things he ran to the Lord on, but, but then it was like God answered his prayer and rather than it compel him to a humble seeking desperate life, he became a little bit cruising, didn't he? He started just cruising down the road. He lost sight of God in the good times of his latter years. So we can learn from this. Be mindful of God's blessings. Pray and seek him during all seasons of life. And understand, you know, there's so many things I'm hitting on here. Enduring well to the end is a mark of the grace of God. I want to encourage it. Some of you may be here today and uh, you're overwhelmed because of sin. I want you to take hope in this. Uh, there's hope in this passage, I really believe, in Second Chronicles 26. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. Humble yourself. You know, I was, uh, I'm looking over some messages for camp and one of them is about Naaman who was cleansed the cleansing power of Christ. He can cleanse you. You may be here today and you're so beat up. You're overwhelmed. I want to encourage you. The cleansing grace of Jesus cleanses like nothing else in the universe. Christ can cleanse you. He can free you. He can forgive you. He can pardon you. And, and when we look at this, so we consider, we look at Hezekiah, we consider our frailty. We go, wow, we got to learn from this guy. Here's a guy who was a model of faithfulness. And then look at what happened. But then we go, no, not only that, consider my walk. Paul calls me just in the same way that I received the Lord Jesus Christ. Now walk in him. How did I receive him? By faith. How did I receive him? In humility. How did I receive him? Through desperation. What is my course of my life to look like? Those same attributes, but finally, not only consider your frailty, consider your walk, but thirdly, consider the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. It's significant that when we look at chapter 18, it uses terminology of David, 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 King David. And one thing we have to understand when we look at Hezekiah is Jesus is the greater son of David. Hezekiah was a wonderful man by the grace of God. It even used terminology of David's war success. 
Same terminology is used in 1 Samuel 18 as it's used of the prospering of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18. But what do we learn? We learn that while Hezekiah was the greatest king they had known in over 250 years, he was a man who was plagued by his own sin. He was a man prone to wonder. He was a man prone to the deceptions of the flesh. And I pray that this gives you a different appreciation for the hope of the gospel. Because we're looking at it from a different angle, aren't we? We're looking at it 700 years before the coming of Christ. And we're looking at it, and now when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, and we see the fact that it's emphasized immediately that he is the son of David. What's it speaking about? This is the greater Moses. This is the greater David. This is the one who can save us. This is the one who can heal us. This is the one who's our substitute. This is the one who sets all wrongs right. He's the only one who can take someone apart from him and bring them near. So today, as we close, is your house in order? It can't be in order apart from the grace of the greater son of David. Have you trusted him? Have you looked to him? I pray we don't study Hezekiah and not see in the background the miracle and the wonder of the grace of Messiah. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for, I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you for our guests. I thank you, oh Lord, that you've given us your word. And, and, and Lord, we're prone to all these things. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to pride. But I thank you through the grace of your Holy Spirit. We have hope. We have hope because we have a substitute who took our place at the cross. We have hope because you lived for us and died for us. We have hope because you paid the penalty. You bore the wrath, oh Jesus. You took the wrath for us. And I pray now that we would take heed to your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd stand with me just in these last couple moments.